After the proclamation of God's word this afternoon, we'll praise God with the words of hymn 45, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. I may proclaim to you this afternoon the word of God concerning the uh, passage that we read together, and we'll focus on verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, I suspect that no one here doubts that marriage is a rather very fragile institution. Even if you're blessed to live in a good marriage and enjoy those delights day after day, we all know of people who are not so blessed and of marriages and families that are really being destroyed because of all kinds of forces. So what do we do about it? Well, there's one approach that puts a great deal of stress on gender roles. It says that the basic problem again and again is that both husband and wife need to submit to their God-given functions. Husbands need to be the head of their families, use their authority, and wives need to submit and that will go a long way of, to solving it. A more secular approach would say that the real problem in so many marriages is that you have to get your spouse to recognize your potential and help you develop it. You've got to develop yourself in marriage. And if, if that's not happening, you need to take action somehow. Both of those contain some elements of truth, I think. There are rules in marriage, distinct rules for husband and wife, also today. And in marriage, both parties really do need to be allowed to flourish and to do well and to praise God in their own lives. But yet I think, I think the solution that Paul uncovers lies somewhere else. Paul has been going on for a long time, you see, about the grace of God in this letter to the Ephesians. And how the grace of God changes you and changes everything about you. And it's that grace that is decisive also here. The consequence of having the grace of God is that you are also filled with the Holy Spirit. We heard this morning about the Spirit dwelling in us. Well, here the language changes a bit. And he, and he talks in 5 verse 18 about be filled with the Spirit. And you have to realize that this filling with the Spirit is something that has to happen again and again. It goes as it goes with your gas tank, pardon the analogy, but you know, when gas prices are really high, you wish that you could fill this thing once and leave it there and it would run forever. It doesn't work that way. But so too with the filling of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, we, on the Pentecost day, we, we meet these people and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. But if you continue to read the book of Acts, they are filled with the Spirit again and again and again. And even the verb that Paul uses there is in such a tense that it really means keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and so uh, then the question comes up, well, and what happens once you are, you are filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul actually tells us because he says there's a whole bunch of things that are consequences of filling with the Holy Spirit. And he shows us this by way of 
what we call participles. Pardon for the grammar lesson. It's almost time for school, so it should be good to have a little grammar lesson. Participles, what are they? They are verbs that end with I and G, and they're usually de dependent upon another verb. Well, here too, in verse 18, we have be filled, that's the main verb, with the Spirit. And then we have a whole series of participles. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, there's a second participle, and making melody, a third participle, in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always uh, to the God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the fifth participle, submitting to one another in the fear of God. In other words, Paul's saying, this is what happens when you're filled with the Spirit you sing and you like to sing because you want to praise God, you give thanks to God, and you submit to one another in the fear of God. Each one of those participles is the result of the main verb, and Paul's speaking about what happens when the people of God are filled again and again with the Spirit. And that, Paul would say, is really a key principle in marriage. What do we need for a good, happy, and healthy marriage? Yes, we need to know our roles. Yes, we need to allow each other to develop. But we need especially the fullness of the Spirit of God, and that Spirit will help us to submit to one another. And notice the one another part here. In the ensuing passage, it's really not just husbands who have, not just wives who have to submit to their husbands and children who have to submit to their parents. Now read the passage carefully and you will see that there's something very submissive about the roles of everybody in the passage. There's something very submissive also about the role of husband. And there's something submissive even about the role of, of parents, fathers, and mothers. Everybody needs to learn the principle of submission because it's a very Christian principle. Verse 21 is really giving us a key principle for everything that follows in this delightful passage. So God's word comes to you under this theme. Paul commands the people of God who are married to submit to one another. We'll talk about how and we'll talk about why. Paul commands the people of God who are married to submit to one another how and why. Brothers and sisters, if we really want to understand what Paul is saying here, we have to think about this question. What was marriage like before Paul entered into the world? What was marriage like before Christianity entered into the world? Would the nature of marriage change when Christians enter it? It's the kind of question I often get on the mission field. Somebody gets converted and they say, okay, now what does that do to my relationship? What does that do to the fact that I have two wives or something like that? Well, that's the kind of question that would happen in Paul's missionary world. What does marriage look like now? Well, Paul's world really involved the, the coalescing of three different worlds. He, Paul prided himself on being Jewish. 
In the Jewish world, upon marriage, a woman was transferred from, from the authority of her father to the authority of her husband. It was much like the transfer of property. Once the bridal price had been paid, the wife was in complete submission to her husband. Divorce, if later desired, could only be initiated by the husband. In the first century AD, the rabbinic school of Hillel dominated, and according to this school, a man could initiate divorce if his wife spoiled a meal or if he found another woman who was more beautiful. The Hellenistic world, the Greek world, which influenced much of Paul's world, was not much different. According to the philosopher Aristotle, the male is just better suited, uh, better fitted to command than the female is. In Athens, a woman was obliged to marry the man her father had arranged, and once married, here to a woman lived under the authority of her husband the way she had lived under the authority of her father. Fidelity was expected of the woman, but the husband was free to engage in adultery with his slave girls and if he really wanted to seek friendship, he could seek that with males in a homosexual manner. Demosthenes, a famous orator from Athens, was reported as saying, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. The Roman world, however, actually went through some pain on account of all this kind of stuff. And shortly before the Christian era in the Roman world, they had a kind of a women's liberation movement, a protest of women who, who wanted to live differently and, and be much more free. It was the phenomenon of the new woman. Emperor Augustine became so, so concerned about this new phenomenon and at first concerned about the future of his empire. What's going to happen to families if women do this and children if women do this? That he actually imposed a whole bunch of legislation on the empire. According to that legislation, marriage was required for men and women at a certain age and remarriage was required after divorce or the death of the spouse. Children were also encouraged. In fact, a married woman could be emancipated for her husband if she had three children or more. Against all of that, then, that's the backdrop. Against all of that, what is Paul saying about marriage and family? Well, you shouldn't be surprised that he has a whole lot to say about unity. And he wants unity. Paul's all about unity. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, he talked about how Jesus Christ was the head of the world and he came into the world to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in chapter 2, he didn't he speak about a new unity for mankind, no longer Jews versus Gentiles, but one new man in the, in the, in the work of Jesus Christ in place of the two. So we're not surprised when here, too, he works for unity in marriage. And how does he work for unity? Precisely by insisting, as he does here in 5 verse 21, on spirit-filled Christians submitting to one another in marriage. 
The whole passage is extremely countercultural, whether your predominant culture was Roman, Jewish, or Greek. Paul is working towards unity like no one else. One new world under Christ, one new man in Christ, must mean a oneness in the home like never before. Maybe it wasn't quite so offensive to surrounding cultures because he does talk about wives submitting and about children obeying. Maybe you think, that's the key in my home. If only my wife would be more submissive and my children more obedient. And, and yes, that needs to be there, but that alone doesn't describe everything. In Paul's day, Paul revolutionizes marriage with what he says in 5 verse 21 and how he expounds that later throughout the passage. He actually sets the whole concept of headship on its head for rather than saying that a wife needs to sacrifice herself for her head, her husband, he says husbands have to learn to sacrifice themselves for their wives. Paul admonishes the husbands to sacrifice themselves for their wives. Paul says, submit to one another. Because no one in the Christian home gets away without something that looks like submission. A Christian husband can't act like he's single. A Christian father can't act like he's not a parent and still be talking out of the fullness of the Spirit and conversion in Jesus Christ. A Christian husband and father must seek the unity and well-being of his family and the well-being of his wife and family precisely by giving in to what is their best interests. You can no longer wake up on Saturday morning and say, what am I going to do? And ignore everybody else. you got to think about, what are we going to do? You have a responsibility for everybody. You must make sure, and you must use that power and love that you have for the benefit of everyone in this family. Everyone is living here not just for self, but for Jesus Christ. And especially the father and husband needs to be setting the example of that. Do you have any doubt that, the, that the, Paul is talking about the husband living in a submissive way? Well, then look at what Paul says about our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he is, the head of the church. Here he is, the one who we think gives the orders. But is the nature of such headship that that's all he does, is give us orders? Is he selfish, living only for himself? No, he loves the church and gives himself up for her. Whenever you have those two kind of words together, the second one defines and explains the first one when he talks about loves, him, loves her and gives himself Giving is how, what love looks like. How does he love? He loved by giving himself up. He loved by submitting himself, if you want, to the church and to her well-being and to her future. His headship consisted in sacrifice and death. His leadership over the church involved his sacrifice for the church. Paul says the husband who loves his wife in this way will continually sacrifice himself for her in the same way Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself. Again and again, the husband's decision should be based on what is best for his wife. 
In fact, she should radiate because he is, she is loved by him, even as the church should radiate because the church has been loved by Jesus Christ. The fact that we seem to forget again and again in all our marriage celebrations is that each one of these persons who are getting married are defective. Defective because of sin. I mean, you can dress them up and you can make the bride as white as can be and looking as perfect as she possibly can be the most beautiful day in her life. And you can dress him up in a nice tuxedo and he can look wonderful, better than he'll ever look again. But sometimes I have the urge to preach a message about how both of these people are actually very defective. Defective why? Defective because of the power of sin. Sin is going to raise its ugly head in this marriage, in every marriage. The only person who was without sin never got married. Nobody got to marry him. His name is Jesus Christ. But each one of us marries imperfect people, regardless of how beautiful or charming they may be. And that sin will come out in terms of selfishness. It's true of husbands and wives and parents and children. When two people get married and idealistically expect the other one to fill up their love tanks in a way that only God can do, they are demanding an impossibility. They are exerting on their home a great big sucking force that's going to cause all its walls, all its life to collapse. And the only answer to this kind of selfishness is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which commands us all to submit to each other and look after each other. Paul is saying, only if you have learned to serve others and to submit to one another by the power of the Holy Spirit will you have the power to face the challenges of marriage. Read the scriptures carefully and you will know that the real purpose of Christian marriage actually is not happiness, but it's happiness that comes about in the way of holiness. Isn't that what our form for marriage talks about? It actually talks about the first purpose of marriage. First, husband and wife shall live together in sincere love and holiness, helping each other faithfully in all things that belong to this life and the life to come. How do you do this? You do this by serving each other, by submitting to one another. Sin will raise its ugly head in every marriage, in every home, and when sin raises its ugly, hair, its, its ugly head in every marriage, in every home, you have to learn the principles of forgiveness. You have to learn about the walking in the ways of holiness. And you have to take leadership there and show what that looks like. And, and that's why the happiness only comes when it's gone through the process of, of holiness and learning what holiness is all about. And only after that do we talk about the second purpose of marriage, which has to do with children. 
Some think they will be happy by compromising with the world, bring a little smut into our lives or into our home, bring a little unholiness. But if marriage is a place that brings in two spirit-filled Christians, even if there is only one, the spirit will hold up the mirror of holiness and say, this is the way to live in this institution. And they will grow in a manner more blessed than all unholiness can ever bring. And they will know a happiness that will, uh, that will go on into eternity. A happiness the world can never know. Happiness through holiness is what it's all about. The world thinks separation, divorce is the answer. There's this sin and there's this incompatibility, whatever that means, and all this other stuff. And so separation and divorce is the answer. But Paul says love and submission is the answer. Unless this fundamental change happens from the inside out through the filling of the Holy Spirit in each marriage partner, the same mistakes will be made in a new relationship. Why do you think people who end one marriage go on for a second and a third and so on and so forth? As someone put it, the deep happiness that marriage can bring lies on the far side of sacrificial service in the power of the Spirit of God. That is, you only discover your own happiness after each of you has put the happiness of your spouse ahead of your own in a sustained way in response to what Jesus has done for you. And if we know the gospel, then that should not surprise us at all. Does our Lord Jesus not say in the Gospels that the nature of life in the world out there is that their rulers lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority? But he says, so it should not be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This is the rule of the kingdom, he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The husband of the church, Jesus Christ, is not there to serve. He's as great to be served. He's as great as he is precisely because he gives up his whole life in the interest of serving. And he submits himself to the church. And that's what shapes the whole Christian life, doesn't it? Paul tells the, tells the Philippians in chapter 2, they should in humility consider others better than themselves. Paul tells the Romans in chapter 15, they should seek to please, please their neighbors for their own good to build them up, for Christ did not please himself. Paul tells the Galatians in chapter 5 that instead of devouring each other, they should consider being slaves of each other. This is what the Spirit does even to the church and the world. The deep benefit of the church, both for those within and those without, lies on the far side of sacrificial service in the power of the Spirit. If that's the nature of the Christian life, it's no surprise, is it? 
that that's to be the nature of Christian marriage. Christian marriage is really a, a microcosm of what the world, the, of what the church rather is all about. It is in the intimacy of marriage and in the family that we really display whether or not the gospel is working in our hearts. Yes, a Christian husband will be a leader. He will be the head. He will set the direction. Don't think for a moment that I or, or Paul are going soft on, on leadership and headship. He will be the head. He will set the direction. When there's trouble, the buck stops with him and you hold him responsible. But it will always be a loving leadership if it's modeled on the leadership of Jesus Christ. And it will be a humble leadership, and it will be a serving leadership. It must be, because Christ is the model, and the Spirit of Christ is the driving force here, filled with the Spirit. In fact, that's probably what Paul means when he calls marriage a mystery, a mega-mystery. The word might really mean secret. The big secret of Christian marriage, submitting to one another, seeking the unity we have in Christ. It is that unity in marriage is ever elusive unless and until people are in Christ and husbands learn to lead and to love just as Christ loved the church even to his death. And that has to do not just with the big moments in our lives, it has to do also with smaller moments. It's got a day-to-day -day reality about it. It's like one wife said to her husband, I know Paul said you have to be willing to die for me, and, and dear, I'm really happy that you're willing to die for me. But that doesn't look like it's going to happen soon, so today would you just do the dishes? We can smile about it and dream up all kinds of consequences, but realize this. No admonition to husbands could have been more countercultural to a Jewish person or a Roman person or a Greek person to man than this. If Christ and his death is the model for every Christian husband, doesn't that speak volumes rather than focusing on the rights that you have and the rights of husbands and fathers and rather than providing financial incentives for the promotion of marriage as the emperor did, <coughs> Paul drove right to the heart of marital unity by presenting the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as a model for the relationship of husband and Yes, wives are to submit to their husbands, but this does not reduce her to the role of a slave. This should not lead to her suppression, but rather to her flourishing. This does not mean she has no voice and no opinion and no vote and no personhood apart from him. For the husband to whom she is to submit is a man who is to submit and who does submit like Jesus Christ, and to Jesus Christ. And so there's our last point. Why? I think it's obvious by now. For the sake of unity. For the sake of success and happiness in marriage. Exactly that which the world can never find and will not find as long as it opposes the gospel. But there's another reason. Paul says we should submit to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. Now, the New King James says, submitting to one another in the fear of God, but the note says, the NU text reads, Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And that really is the preferred reading. Out of the fear of Christ, possibly you could translate. What does that mean? Does that mean now we are afraid of Jesus Christ? That we shouldn't do it because he's going to come back and punish us? I think behind the language of Paul about the fear of our Lord, the fear of Christ, he, he really, behind that language, there is the Old Testament notion of the, of the fear of the Lord. And that's not about being afraid either, unless you're really ignoring God's ways. It's about finding our delight and walking according to God's precepts. Walking in the fear of God means living God's way rather than your own way. The fear of the Lord has a new Christocentricity about it here as we live our lives in the fear of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the time when Paul talks about our Lord, he's talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. Fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder because of the greatness of God and the tremendous nature of his love. The more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder in the face of the greatness of everything he is and everything that he has done for us. The fact is, it all has to do with how God-centered and spirit-filled our lives really are. Many people idolize marriage. Single people often think they cannot possibly live a full life without being married. And married people often look to their spouses to find meaning and significance and purpose in their lives. In years when I was pastoring, I sometimes wondered, like all these single people seem to think that their lives will only begin when they become married. And all these married people think their life will only take off once they become unmarried. What do we need? We need to find our satisfaction and our meaning and our significance not in each other. Yes, we are all important to each other, especially in marriage, but we need to find our meaning and significance in God. It is not our spouse that's going to fill this vacuum of our hearts. It's God. If I look to my spouse to fill the God-sized vacuum in my heart, I'm always sure to be disappointed. And the marriage will be a failure to the same measure as we can find fault in our spouses. And we can all do that because we married imperfect people. But when I look to God and his son am filled with his spirit, then things change because I change and you change and we begin to model ourselves after our Lord Jesus Christ, thinking not about how we can be served, but how we can serve. Because that is the Christian life. And the Christian life needs, must be lived out, first of all, if anywhere, in the home and within marriage. And then when that happens, something amazing happens. Spouses actually begin to see in each other something of Jesus Christ. And that's wonderful, that's delightful, 
that's powerful. A mega mystery indeed. God gives us tremendous things, not just for the future, not just for eternity, but even for now, for today, for tomorrow. Thanks be.